Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Murillo University Medical Center. I'm Bronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. On today's episode, we are going to break down the super basic fundamentals of chemotherapy. Now guys, I mean, you guys have been doing this a lot longer than I have, but let me tell you, when I first started fellowship, the idea of ordering chemotherapy, talking about chemotherapy, thinking about chemotherapy was incredibly intimidating. And I'm not going to lie, it kind of still is, but you know, it just seems so scary. And it's this alien concept that we don't talk much about in residency, at least I didn't, because it was always a fellow or an attending that was busy ordering it or, or, you know, as we now know, a lot of this chemotherapy is given in the outpatient setting and not something that we always had exposure to in residency. So I'm really excited to be able to share these fundamentals with our listeners. I I 100% agree. I remember my first day of fellowship was in clinic and it was my own clinic and I had a new patient and I had to explain to them a regimen called BVCHP which included a medicine called Brentuximab Vidotin and I remember thinking in my head what is this alien thing that I'm prescribing somebody and why am I talking to them about it right now? Uh, it you know, it's, it's a terrifying experience when you first start it and you're really nervous about it, but it's really simple and we're going to explain to everybody how to go about doing it, what resources to use, and give you the fundamentals so that when you're in that position, it'll be a lot easier. Yeah, you can tell we're running out of words when they come up with drug names like Tegraxafusp and Belantamab Mathodote. I just definitely agree with what you guys have said. I also found it really intimidating, and it kind of struck me when I was getting into counseling patients, like, if I'm feeling this scared about writing the chemotherapy, imagine how they must be feeling about to get the chemotherapy. And I think part of that comes from just how chemo is portrayed in popular media. We see these people who are getting run through the ringer, just very sick, uh, losing their hair, wrapped up in a towel, looking puny. And the truth is sort of not quite quite like that. So it can be important to remind ourselves and often important when you're counseling patients to tell people we've been using the same chemo drugs, some of these conventional chemotherapy drugs since like the 1980s. And our survival rates are getting better and better. And a lot of that is because we've gotten a lot better at how we give chemo. We're more responsible in whom we're giving it to. We're better at treating people through their side effects. And um, and so I don't want you as incoming fellows or trainees to be scared of chemo. It's It's something that that you should be familiar with and and think of as an ally in clinical care. Another useful analogy I think of is antibiotics. Oncology and infectious disease are remarkably similar subspecialties. We're both aiming to kill single-celled organisms with chemicals, and even the mechanisms are really similar between a lot of these drugs. Profound words of wisdom by our very own Dan Hausrath. And that's even before we get into the official episode. I mean, that's... I know, I know, I know. He's just so pensive reflecting back on the episode. It's... uh, You guys are definitely in for a treat. So guys, why don't we roll the episode for our listeners? Hey guys, how's everybody doing today? Doing pretty well. I'm um, making the... So one of the things that we do here at Loyola University Medical Center where when we're leaders in the fellowship, I guess whatever that means when you're a fellow, you have to make the call schedule. And I think that's all it means to be a quote unquote leader in the fellowship is making this massive call schedule. So that's what I've been doing 
the past couple of days. So my brain is totally fried. Hopefully what I say makes sense on this podcast today. <laughs> I, I don't envy you in the least bit, Vivek. Having done a, a chief year um, at my residency program, you know, the program that we used to use to, to display schedules is analogous to Minesweeper, that game from like 1998 that we used to play on our desktops. Um, just a bunch a of fun boxes. Game. It's a really fun game. It is game. a fun game, except I, to this day, I still don't actually know how to play. I kind of just clicked, clicked uh, randomly. different squares, <laughs> which is effectively how I used to make the schedule for, for our residents. But, um, you know, there are so many entry points. There's so many opportunities for error. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people get upset even with a little mistake because it makes a big difference in their lives. So thanks for doing this for our program. We certainly appreciate it. Yeah, seriously. First and last time. <laughs> <laughs> Once is enough. Guys, I am really, really excited about today's episode because we are going to be talking to our listeners and inviting them into a discussion about pharmacology and more specifically chemotherapy pharmacology. But a lot of the nuances are things that you can look up. There's not things that we can tell you in a podcast that are going to stick with you. In fact, it might just become overwhelming. And so what we thought would be a good idea as we start segueing from our intro episodes about fundamentals of hematology and oncology and slowly gradually moving into more specific disease types is just take a moment and talk about chemotherapy from a 30,000 foot view, how we as fellows view this idea of providing patients with information about chemotherapy, how we counsel them, how we think about chemotherapies, and some of the nuances associated with administering the drug. So as a, as a first year fellow myself, I learned a lot of these things along the way, often after making some mistakes. And so I'm just really glad that now we have a have an opportunity to ensure that people that are listening to our show don't have to make the same mistakes. Absolutely. I'm really excited to hear how Dan explains how he goes through it, how Ronak, you explained it, and how I explained it, because everyone has a different approach. And this is just to provide everybody that basic idea of how to do this. And it's also great if you're a hospitalist or an internal medicine resident, because we're going to tell you, how do you know what side effects to expect from chemotherapy? We're going to explain an easy way to find that information in the episode today. I, I wanted to start it off with a, with a case of the patient I mentioned in the intro, if that's okay with you guys. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I, this is my first day of clinic as a new fellow. I had a patient come in, and he had this biopsy report that said concern for anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is a subtype of T-cell lymphoma. We'll get into the details of that type of disease much later on in this podcast. But what I want to highlight here is that when I looked up how to treat this patient, the first thing I did was I went to NCCN, and I think we've mentioned this in other episodes, but going to nccn.org and looking at treatment by disease type and looking at the guidelines, you can click by disease type and find your cancer. And it, it has basically this clickable algorithm that you can go through to figure out probably what type of treatment plan you want to do. So I started off there and I clicked all the buttons and it got to this thing where it said, recommend considering use of BVCHP. And again, of course, it's not telling me exactly what that means. And you make some other clicks and you eventually get to this regimen. And the regimen included a drug called Brentuximab Vidotin, Cyclophosphamide, Doxorubicin, and prednisone. And I'm like, I know what prednisone is, but the other stuff was just foreign to me. So Dan, let's say that you had a patient and you, again, like I said, first thing to do, everyone created an NCCN guidelines account. Very important to do. And free. 
and free. Create that account, go to it, look up your cancer, find out based on your stage and things like that, the information you have, how to treat it. But Dan, what do you do after that when you see this regimen in these words? It's a great question. It's one that I also sort of struggled with when I was early in training. And for all of our listeners out there, none of these decisions are happening in a vacuum. You're constantly going to and from your attendings and sometimes tumor boards with multiple attendings and your pharmacists and, and, you know, looking things up. But before you approach any of those people or those deliberative bodies, you want to have a good idea of of what you're going to recommend or or what you're going to propose. And so, yeah, after I find what regimen they're recommending, I'll usually go and if, you know, if I'm really curious about a particular drug, like if this is the first time I'd seen brentuximab vidotin, I might just look up that drug on on its own, just look for the papers that supported it. But oftentimes I want to see the regimen in its entirety and see how it's actually administered because seeing those letters on a page don't really tell you anything about how long a cycle is or which drugs are given when. So a resource that I really like for that is the Hemonc wiki. It's H-E-M-O-N-C dot org. Pretty easy to remember, hemonc.org. And it's a pretty cool resource. It's organized also by disease type. There's solid tumors, malignant hematology, major sections then within that, all these different categories. And each disease will have just a long list of regimens that are approved for first line, second line, consolidation, maintenance, that sort of thing. And listed with the regimens is a link to the paper that described them or the evidence that supports their use. So I found that really valuable because there's no substitute for going back to that original paper if you want to see how the patient populations were selected, what the safety profile of these regimens is. That data is most reliable in its original paper. So uh, I think that's pretty essential for me. I 100% agree with you, Dan. That is that's that website has saved me numerous times and like you said the thing that I love about it is the fact that it lays out exactly what days a drug is given. In many cases it even tells you some information about supportive medications that you need to give with these regimens and a lot of these lists or actually all of the lists that are on that website are compiled by disease experts from across the country. So Truly, it's like having the opportunity to talk to people that are doing this day in and day out about very specific regimens for very specific diseases. It's wonderful. And and I really recommend that everybody looks it up. Just go to the website and click on a common cancer like breast cancer. If you are a, a fellow in Hemonc, you're going to treat breast cancer or see breast cancer. If you're a hospitalist, you're going to see a patient with breast cancer come in with maybe toxicity. And you can click through it and see the regimens. And it just kind of gives you a sense of how many days are they getting their chemo. That's something that patients ask often. How many rounds of chemo? And when we think of a round of chemo, we call that a cycle. So one of the things I want to define right now for everybody, if you didn't know, is what a cycle is. And what a cycle is, is it means that the first day that you give chemo is called day one of the cycle. So let's say some patient came in on a Monday and you started chemo on that Monday. Typically with chemotherapy regimens, you give some cocktail combination of drugs, hence our weird acronyms like BVCHP in the case I'm talking about now. And you may give all of the drugs all on one day, or you may give the drugs on day one and some of the drugs on day two. Or you may give a drug on day one and then wait a week and then give the next dose of the drug on what we call day eight. A week later, you give the second dose of that drug. 
there's a certain time that we expect patients' blood counts to recover. Their fatigue and their toxicities and their symptoms get better. And that's the time point when we think we can give them another cycle of chemotherapy. And that's why we developed these cycles. And you can look up how many cycles this patient going to get. They may get, for example, six cycles with each cycle lasting 21 days. So you can tell a patient, well, you'll get six total rounds of chemotherapy and each round will last 21 days. And within that time period, you're, you're only going to get chemo on just a few days. And that helps the patient understand what's going on. So that's one place to start. So you went to NCCN, you could do something like Dan said and go to that Hemonc Wiki website that he talked about and look at when is this given, how many cycles are there, and that's a perfect place to start. Yeah, and some of the common terminology you'll see around notes describing chemotherapy cycles It's usually written with the cycle, abbreviated C, then the number for that cycle, and then the day of the cycle, abbreviated D, and then the number. So cycle one, day one would be written C1, D1, often an important landmark in describing somebody's chemotherapy regimen. And like you said, you know, in addition to being designed around the expected point of recovery, because these drugs are studied in such an intense way, we will also be able to predict along the course of that cycle when certain side effects are likely to emerge. And that includes critical neutropenia, uh, the worst of nausea. So we can counsel patients on when to be looking out for these things. And then obviously the next part of all of this is how do we translate all of this information that we just discerned from the NCCN, from hemonc.org? How do we put that in layman's terms so that our patients understand? Because they are not going to know brentuximab, vidotin. They're just going to look at you like, what did you just say? I mean, frankly, I am looking at Vivek like, what did you just say? So it's always nice then to have good resources that are patient-friendly that you can refer patients to or even print out materials from to share with them. Guys, I don't know if you guys have a, a personal favorite website that you'd like to go to. My go-to is oncolink.org. I found that this website not only breaks down the explanation about the drugs really nicely and the side effect profile, but it's organized very linearly that's easy to follow. And the language that they use, I think, is very easy to understand. But I'm not sure what your preference is. I think that's a great one. And I I also like ChemoCare. So there's a site literally called ChemoCare.com. And you can look up by drug name and it explains it in layman's terms. But the one thing I want to point out with these resources is that when you give this to a patient, it's like watching a commercial. They'll basically take every side effect that happened in the clinical trial and lay them out on that piece of paper. So it's helpful, but it also, it's still important to think about which side effects to really expect and that not all of the side effects are going to happen in a particular patient. It's just telling you what could happen. Yeah. And oftentimes I'm using these resources a little earlier on than the exact moment I'm consenting them. So like if I have a patient coming to clinic and we're talking about different potential options for their chemo, I'll print out the sheets at that point, give them the drugs that are in their most likely regimen. And then when they're coming back to start therapy and I'm going to get ready to consent them and all that, um, they can, they've had time to look things over and write down questions. And I don't know if you guys do a similar thing or have other strategies like that. Yeah, I love giving these handouts to patients in advance because I think, as I'm sure anyone can attest to, if someone is just sitting across the room from you giving you copious amounts of information in, quite frankly, a language that they don't understand, um, it can be overwhelming. And um, I think 
it provides patients almost a sense of empowerment by giving them the handouts in advance from a source and a resource that you trust, giving them a chance to look it over. Honestly, if they are going to, they can research it a little bit and then come back to ask you questions because that is truly the part of the informed consent process that we are supposed to take our patients through. And when things are hectic, it's sometimes easy to forget that informed consent is an important adjective uh, that we have to use when we're going through this process. And, you know, a lot of times the things that you're going to counsel patients on are emphasizing your, if you were just going over the side effect list with them in, in real time, uh, some of the things that you're going to emphasize are probably informed by your own priorities. Like, I'm already losing my hair, so hair loss not really a concern for me. I really don't like being nauseated, so I would probably emphasize talking about nausea and vomiting and all that stuff. But patients have their own set of values and priorities, so the things that are going to really stick in their mind are things you need to know about so you can work with them on avoiding those things. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, if you're meeting a patient maybe for the first time or are just getting into uh, discussing the possibility of chemotherapy with a patient, one thing that's always really important to remember is you need an updated height and weight. These chemotherapy drugs, it's not like ibuprofen where you're giving people, you know, two to 800 milligrams. These chemo drugs are usually dosed either based on weight or on body surface area. And it sounds like that's kind of a weird way to dose something. Like, why does it matter what their body surface area is? But it's it's related to using BSA or body surface area as a proxy for somebody's metabolism. So getting a height and a weight is really, really important to be able to calculate somebody's dose. And in addition to that, always getting a creatinine and liver function test is a great idea. Always get a CMP and always get a CBC because if your blood counts are too low, can't give the chemotherapy. If your creatinine's too high and the drug is cleared by the kidneys, you might need a dose reduced or you can't give it. You have to delay. And if the LFTs are abnormal and it's cleared by the liver, then you're also going to have a problem. So rule of thumb, the day that somebody's getting chemotherapy, you need a CBC and a CMP all the time. And, and it's really important to remember getting those things because it it can change your dose of chemotherapy and change whether you need to delay the chemotherapy. And I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I had I neglected to mention the area under the curve is another way that we dose drugs. And that requires a creatinine clearance to uh, to be able to calculate AUC or area under the curve. You know, I, I think we've, we've come to the point now where we've talked about what resources can we use to figure out the how many cycles to give. In, in those same resources, we, we can figure out some of the dosing for these chemotherapy regimens. And we also talked about how do you start counseling patients and what handouts can you give them. I want to talk about now, let's let's break it down for our listeners. Let's talk about the categories of chemotherapy and let's break it down in a simple format. The way I like to think about it, and I want to get your guys' thoughts on this, is breaking it down into three big buckets. Cytotoxic chemotherapy, chemotherapy that just kills cells in your body. Immune therapy, drugs that specifically target the immune system or harness the immune system to attack the cancer. And lastly, targeted therapy, which could mean targeting a specific mutation. And, and we talked about a lot of why we send molecular testing in our earlier episodes. And targeted therapy is a big reason why we do that, because we think that we have better efficacy and less side effects when we use these targeted agents in, in some cases. And then, you know, along the lines of that targeted therapy bucket, within that we have targeted chemotherapy, targeted cytotoxic therapy that's linked, a chemotherapy agent that's linked 
to a targeted agent. And we're going to talk about those three big buckets. Yeah. And radio pharmaceuticals, we're going to leave that to another episode, kind of a whole different thing. Yeah, totally agree. So Dan, can you give us your best interpretation of cytotoxic chemotherapy? Absolutely. So cytotoxic chemotherapy is, uh, these are the classic chemotherapy drugs. These are the ones that uh, we think about when we actually think about the word chemo. And what I mean by that is uh, they're drugs that, like Vivek said, are a lot less discriminant in, in the cells that they kill. They're generically toxic to eukaryotic cells, um, inhibiting essential enzymes that are involved in nucleotide metabolism or in DNA replication and uh, in protein synthesis. And these are the ones that I, I analogize to antibiotics. We have antibiotics like ciprofloxacin and moxifloxacin that target DNA gyrase, an essential enzyme in unwinding prokaryotic DNA. Topoisomerase is the eukaryotic equivalent of that. And drugs like etoposide or the anthracyclines, those drugs target that enzyme. Similarly, we have drugs targeting folate metabolism in both the antibacterial and the anti-cancer space. Uh, And so these drugs, I used to say or used to think they just target rapidly dividing cells. And while it's true that part of the reason they're able to be somewhat specific towards cancer and not just kill every cell in a person's body is because they do have a disproportionate impact on cells that are dividing quickly. But another important component of that is that cancer cells are, by definition, abnormal. And even though they're able to divide in an uncontrolled manner, they don't have as robust an internal compensatory mechanism for uh, chemical insults. And so it it's a combination of the fact that cancer cells divide really quickly and that they don't have the internal mechanics that allow them to recover from toxins um, that make chemotherapy effective against them. So kind of a long way to say that it kills cells that divide quickly and are abnormal. That's a a good description of cancer cells, but it's also going to have an adverse effect or a side effect on other cells in the body to divide quickly, like the lining of the mouth, lining the intestines, hair follicles, that sort of thing. And that's why I always tell my patients, whenever I give you chemotherapy, any of these chemotherapy medicines can cause thinning of the hair, hair loss. It can affect the mouth, taste changes, sores in the mouth. It can affect the lining of your digestive system. So things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, in some cases, constipation. And and that's one way that you can just easily bucket the idea of cytotoxic chemotherapy, just attacking lots of different cells in your body. And knowing the exact mechanism is important as you progress through your training, but just knowing that general concept, I think, is really helpful. Ronak, what, what are your thoughts on immune therapy? I think immune therapy is fascinating, to be honest with you. The reality is that our cells in our body are undergoing insults all the time, right? And despite that, not everybody, thankfully, ends up with some sort of cancer. And so the idea behind these is that the immune system may be playing a role in helping our cells regulate normal function and helping to kill off cells that are abnormal appearing. So the idea behind immune therapy is simply that we're providing agents that rev up our own immune system to then recognize these abnormal cells in the body, as as Dan was alluding to, because they do have abnormalities, given that they are not normal, um, and being able to essentially use the immune system to, to kill off these cells. The interesting thing, at least in my experience, is that unlike traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy agents, the side effect profile in general is pretty good for the immune therapy medications. However, 
because it kind of non-specifically revs up our immune system, you run the risk of issues dealing with inflammation. So things like rashes, things like inflammation of different organs, thyroid problems. These are all issues that that we need to be very suspicious for in, in immunotherapy. And we are still, quite frankly, learning a lot about these drugs. And so Whenever we see anything that doesn't seem quite right in a patient that's on immune therapy, you have to wonder, could this be related to the drug? And that was beautifully said in that, you know, that's exactly how we would tell it to a patient as well. You know, that that's what the purpose of immune therapy is. And what you will find as you as you go through giving enough people immune therapy is we will get side effects and these Sometimes you'll you'll hear them called checkpoint inhibitors as as a type of immune therapy, and when we see these immune related toxicities, these immunotherapy related toxicities, we have an antidote for it, which is steroids to suppress the immune system. So that's one of the nice things with immunotherapy. As we get through some of these more specific disease entities, we'll talk about even more types of immune therapy, like using things like CAR T cells, which is where we engineer. T-cells that are little homing missiles to kill cancer, and we infuse them back into patients. But that's, again, out of the scope for just a broad overview, but just knowing that immune therapy can harness the immune system to attack the cancer in some way, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. And in general, the antidote for that is, for toxicities, is steroids. Um, So Dan, take us through some targeted therapy. Yeah. So the one I always think of, uh, and this is probably just because my own research in residency was focused on this, but also just because I think it's a it's an interesting story. EGFR positive lung cancer. There is a subtype of lung cancer that is known to be driven by a mutation in a growth factor receptor, the epidermal growth factor receptor. And they found that in these patients, if you inhibit that receptor's downstream activity, the cancers really kind of melt away. Uh, It doesn't cure people, but it it puts them into a pretty significant remission. And so that's, that's my like archetypal targeted therapy. You have a cancer that you know is being driven by a mutation or by some, uh, or has some distinct marker on its surface. And you go after that thing, uh, that thing that's shared by these cancer cells. And when I say something on its surface, Think about this like a a cancer of the B cells. Say you have a a leukemia that is all B cells, which means they're all displaying the same cell markers on their surface, those phenotypes that we talked about in our flow cytometry episode. There are antibodies out there that'll go after certain cell surface markers, and those antibodies can be essentially tuned to be cytotoxic. They tell the immune system, hey, go kill that thing if it has this antibody stuck on it. And so the way that I can tell when I'm looking at a drug name, whether or not something is a targeted therapy or a conventional chemotherapy. Typically, if it ends in IB, IB, or MAB, M-A-B, it's either a small molecule inhibitor of some target, that's the IBS, or an antibody drug, a monoclonal antibody drug targeted at some surface receptor or other protein, and MAB for monoclonal antibody. Um, And when you see that, you're definitely in the targeted space. Typically, those antibody drug conjugates uh, or sort of targeted chemotherapy that Vivek alluded to earlier, that'll be a MAB drug with a hyphen and then another drug name. This should be distinguished from uh, a MAB drug that has a hyphen and then four random letters. That is a thing that was recently introduced. I'm honestly hoping that it goes away at some point. I think of it like the last four digits of a zip code. 
uh, in that it is incredibly useless <laughs> and no one really uses them for anything as far as I know. Um, 100% but it was a way to differentiate between similar sounding drugs. There has to be a better way to do it than that. In any event, antibody drug conjugates are things like belantamab mafidotin or brentuximab vidotin. A mab and then some other name, usually of highly toxic or highly potent chemotherapy agent that you wouldn't be able to safely give systemically unless it's tagged to something that'll deliver it just to cancer cells. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing concept. And this idea of antibody targeted therapy, antibody drug conjugates, is really becoming a, a norm in oncology, both malignant hematology and solid tumor oncology. So it's really important to understand that. And I think exactly like what Dan says, if you if you see a chemotherapy regimen and you see a MAB in it, targeted for some phenotypic expression, most likely. If you see an IB, that's it's a small molecule inhibitor of some typically driver mutation that we we find in some of these cancers that can help suppress the growth and, and kill the cancer. doesn't mean there won't be side effects from these medications as well, but they're, they're more targeted. And for the antibody drug conjugate, one thing I wanted to mention is that each one is slightly different. And the way I like to think about this is, and, and we had a great lecturer here at Rouleau that, that described it like this. Imagine that you had this monoclonal antibody, which is like a little homing missile target that binds to a specific antigen on the surface of a cancer cell or a tumor cell. The antibody drug conjugate, think about it like a Christmas tree, that the base of the Christmas tree is the antibody, and all of the lights on the Christmas tree is the chemotherapy. And the more lights you have, or the more linkers of chemo you have, the more potent the effect is going to be. And what we see is that even if cancers are generally somewhat heterogeneous, and they may not all express this marker that you're trying to target, but you'll get a bystander effect from all of those chemotherapy drugs that are linked to the base of that Christmas tree, which is targeting the tumor cell. And you also get direct entry of the chemotherapy to some of the tumor cells. So antibody drug conjugates are a really important type of targeted therapy. Because I think this is an awesome overview. And again, like I said in the beginning, I these are some of the things that I learned kind of along the way through the course of the first year so far. And so I'm glad that we're having this discussion, this very frank, honest discussion about really important things like how do we pick a regimen? Where do we go to look up regimens? How do we counsel patients and ensure that they are aware of what they're, you know, signing up for once they agree to, to getting a regimen? Um, and a general breakdown of all the different types of chemotherapy, and I'm, I'm using that term in air quotes because it's no longer appropriate to call all things chemotherapy, but I guess a better way to say that is agents to uh, treat cancer um, uh, appropriately. So things like cytotoxic agents versus immune therapy uh, options versus more targeted cytotoxic therapies. And then listeners, remember, if you're going to take away nothing else from all of this, just remember, it's always important to check blood work, a creatinine and LFTs and a CBC for your patients, because we use these to either make adjustments to medications, potentially hold medications, but they're also important for helping us dose our meds as well. Which also reminds me, as Dan had reminded all of us, you must always get an updated height and weight because we use things like body surface area and calculating an area under the curve for dosage adjustments for medications as well. Yeah, that was an awesome recap, Ronick. And I, I think I think let's stop for this episode now and let's come back next week for part two where we, we get into a little bit more of 
when to get a port, some supportive care, medications for chemotherapy, and how we go about making some of those decisions. Yeah, I certainly have a lot of questions for you all next week. At least I think I do. So I hope you're ready. Yeah, looking forward to it. <laughs> that sounds good. Guys, any other lasting thoughts? I think you I think you covered it. Sounds good. All right, guys. Well, until next time, everybody, thanks for joining in on another episode of The Fellow on Call. We'll see you later. See you later. Peace.